It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac, or drop a crispy fry between the car seats, or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Hello, and welcome to the BBC Country Farm Magazine podcast. The podcast that takes you on great escapes into the outdoors, meets fascinating rural people, and tackles some of the big issues facing our countryside. My name is Fergus Collins, and I'll be your host today. As Easter is on the horizon, this week we're talking about holy walks in the countryside, pilgrimages old and new to shrines and sacred places. My guest is historian Dr Emma Wells of the University of York, an expert in medieval life, pilgrimages and religious sites. And she's going to tell us why pilgrimages were so important and even suggest a few modern day ones for us to tackle. So when was the heyday of the, of the pilgrimage, would you say? And what were pilgrimages? Well, <laughs> two big well, questions. Two huge questions, really. Um, the, the sort of zenith apogee of pilgrimage in the past um, was sort of from the mid to late Middle Ages, sort of 13th to 15th century, arguably, of course. Um, but in fact, in Britain, pilgrimage began, well, even before there were Christians. So the the amazing prehistoric trackways that we often walk upon, that we you know, we love to track upon even to this day, um, which were law unto themselves, um, they have shown the way to our ancestors for millennia. For example, the chalky trails of the English Downs, they can still be traced, they're still walked upon, um, and they have been done so for, for you know thousands of years, continuing their existence as sort of subtle landmarks, changed across the landscapes, and sort of they've been ingrained with a mysticism of the past, which is sort of akin to very much a spiritual pilgrimage, which, as I say, modern modern pilgrims still still want to conquer, still want to walk across. Um, so is that is that places like the Ridgeway? Then is that would you say that's a pilgrimage route? Yes, indeed. I mean, 
a lot of them have sort of transpired and transformed over the years. So they might have begun as um, trade routes, for example, um, you know, mining, mining routes, trade routes to the coast, and then slowly and slowly upon time became pilgrim routes. And they are now what we would call our sort of walking routes today, in fact. Um, so would pe- pe- people have walked along the ridgeway to a place like Avebury? Would, they, would that have been a sort of pilgrimage route then in the past? Yes. Absolutely. Sort of many of the places that we see as spiritual landmarks, not only spiritual landmarks, but religious landmarks and spiritual landmarks, people would have journeyed to them. This is slightly perhaps before before and after the, the, the sort of time of pilgrimage, the age of faith that we think of, the medieval pilgrimage that we think of. But indeed, people still certainly walked to these to these very spiritual holy sites for whatever reason. We're still trying to find out, but absolutely, for many hundreds, thousands of years, absolutely yes. And so, why 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 go on pilgrimage? I mean, I, I, yes, you, you talked about those those ancient times where we don't we don't know we don't have the evidence, but but in more modern times, a medieval period, which I think of as, as a sort of medieval as a, as a heyday of pilgrimages, but yeah. why? Well, many reasons, really. So pilgrimages to holy spiritual places, they enable the faith to essentially atone for your sins, to seek miraculous cures and to extend experience of the world. So it wasn't just one particular reason. But what they were going to see, largely, were the bodily remains of the saints or holy bodies or holy relics and the objects associated with them. So we think, um, for example, at Chartres, um, we have the Virgin's mantle. We have a lot of saints in Britain as well. They were the sort of star attractions for pilgrims. Um, And they might travel very short distances to see and touch the shrines of these local saints. You know, a few days like Chaucer's pilgrims took, or they might undertake more ambitious and dangerous journeys as well. I mean, we often think of the very long journeys to Canterbury or Walsingham or, you know, abroad to Santiago or Lourdes. But actually, they weren't just these very arduous journeys. You may just travel to your local parish church, and they were much more common. Um, And so the the sort of motivation was um, penance, ridding yourself of one's sin. And when you got to the church, you could do so in various forms. And largely, in the medieval period, unfortunately, it was money. So you could pay... um, for what we would call an indulgence. And it was sort of a form of insurance. A remission of sin was therefore earned either by prayer or, as they say, through usually a donation. And that would release you from your time in purgatory. That's, you know, the limbo between heaven and earth. So, you know, if indulgences were therefore used to encourage visits to shrine sites, to encourage pilgrims, and ultimately, I suppose, led to the idea of buying salvation. But people could also go for other reasons, such as simply from, as I say, they might want a cure for an illness um, before Western medicine, um, or simply the hope of a better harvest, or just just to have a day out even. Um, It wasn't just, you know, the expectation of miracles, but to for everyday eases and cures in a world without sort of medicine or, you know, modern day theme parks, as it were. Yeah, OK. I, I, I'm quite interested in the, this idea that people might actually have gone on these walks to experience a bit of the world, which is mm. kind of what we try and uh, kind of try and extol in the magazine. But um, 
But I think a lot of people might, a lot of listeners might think, oh gosh, in medieval times, people didn't leave their villages. And were people a bit more sort of adventurous than we give them credit for? And perhaps you know, everyone was moving around a bit more. And, and perhaps we're, in modern days today, we're, we're not as mobile as, as perhaps our ancestors were. Well, I think we're perhaps going more towards the medieval period was was like certainly people travelled, um, but as I say, the sort of very long, torturous, arduous journeys to uh, the very large shrine sites such as Canterbury, uh, Durham before that, Walsingham, etc. They would be once in a lifetime opportunities. You didn't have um, sick pay, you didn't have holiday pay. Remember, so you had to work year in year out and all year round. Therefore, you couldn't simply go off to pilgrimage um, whenever you felt like it, as it were. You did have to plan for it. And in fact, you would need to go to your local parish church and see your local parish priest in order to do so and make the vow of pilgrimage. And in fact, you could also, and what many people did, put it in their will that someone else would go on their behalf for them when they died, <laughs> right, which is an easy way of doing it. Yeah, that's a bit <laughs> onerous to hand that on yeah. to someone else to do. Um, Absolutely. So I, I'm... I can think of several pilgrimage routes. Obviously, I did the uh, Canterbury Tales at school, and and that's quite a romantic idea of leaving London and travelling across the North Downs to Canterbury. But what other great routes in in the UK are there? I mean, we're focusing on the UK in in the magazine, but what what um, what big ones could you point out to readers, and and perhaps one of your favourites? Well, there there are quite a few. Um, in my book, Pilgrim Roots of the British Child, I, I sort of bring up my, my seventh favourite. Um, but within that, I do discuss perhaps the most popular within England, um, which is Walsingham. Um, and this has been perhaps England's premier site, one of England's premier sites for, for hundreds of years. In fact, a quarter of a million pilgrims still to this day, every year, um, descend upon the north, Norfolk village of Walsingham. It's the site of the 11th century shrine of the Virgin Mary. And in fact, it's self-branded England's Nazareth. So that sort of shows just how important it is. Um, And we see now, I think in 2010, it was something like 250,000 people um, go there and went there in one year. So this just shows just how important it is. but there is the there's the Walsingham Way, which is a sort of pilgrim route towards Walsingham. Um, it's about 70 miles or so, which begins at the shrine site of St. Ethelred's at um, Ely Cathedral, passes by the ruins of Castle Lake Priory, so beautiful landscape. Um, and Castle Lake Priory was the first Cluniac monastery in England. And then it culminates at the Slipper Chapel at Walsingham, where the shrine and relics of the Virgin were housed in, in the little village, which is about sort of halfway between Norwich and the town of King's Lynn. Um, and just to note, how the, the, the Slipper Chapel is quite interesting because um, so it's located about some miles south of Walsingham, was built around the early 14th century and it's the last pilgrim chapel before the village um, and it's an unusual name derived from the pilgrims who would remove their shoes and then they would walk barefoot the rest of the way to Walsingham and what's quite interesting about this the whole site at Walsingham is that it was reconsecrated um, at the Reformation obviously it fell out of favour 
But in the early 20th century, it became a shrine again, and hence why it's become such an important site to um, particularly the Catholic faith okay. and as are, well. Are people still doing that journey from Ely to Walsingham? I mean, do, Absolutely. That, so this, this sort of quarter of a million people who do it every year are, are, are doing the walk? Or are, they, are some of them driving? <laughs> <laughs> some of them are certainly driving. Some of them are Cheeky. just tourists, of course. Yes. But there are many people who descend upon the route and follow the route itself um, because it's such an important Catholic shrine. You know, its spirituality is still imbued there. It is the number one shrine within England, uh, the primary Catholic shrine still. So um, that is where you would go within England and you would encounter the Virgin there. So there is no, there's nothing really like it. It's the closest you will experience, I think, to a medieval shrine in England. Now seems an appropriate time to have a little taste of medieval pilgrimages through the words of Geoffrey Chaucer and his Canterbury Tales. One that Abril with his sure sota, the drocht of March hath pierced to the rota, and bathed every vine in switch liqueur, of which vertu engendred is the flour. One Zaphorus ek with his sweat breathe, in spirit hath in every old and eth, the tender cropes and the young sona, hath in the ram his have course erona. And smale falles make an melodie, that slepen all the nicht in open ear. So preketh hem netur in hill garages, than longen folk to go on pilgrimages. And parmes for to seconds stranges strondes to ferne halwes, coth and sondre londes. And specially from every shares of Ingalande to Canterbury they wende, the holy blissful matter for to seca, than him hath helpen when that they were seca. But for this Easter, I thought it was quite interesting you mentioned the small pilgrimages to the local church, to the local parish church. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone has yeah. one of these within reach of them. They're such mm-hmm. a feature of the British landscape. But why? Why ch- parish church absolutely everywhere? Well, um, I suppose the, the parish churches, of course, tell the tale of about 15 years of our of our English, as you say, history, and in fact, social change. Um, they are, to this day, an integral part of English life, social life and culture. Back um, in sort of in the medieval era, in the Middle Ages, um, the church was central to community life. Um, it seems to have sort of suited everyone until we get to the Reformation, of course. Um, but daily life for the vast majority of the population was closely bound to the local parish church. It was the focal point of a community. So everyone within a church's sphere of influence would gather within it to worship together, of course. And they were led through the mysteries of the sacrament by the local priest. So as with cathedrals, um, the local parish church was essentially a machine for worship, albeit on a small, smaller scale. Um, and its architecture performed much of the same thing. So the dissemina- dissemination of ideas through teaching based on scripture and biblical texts was an important way of enforcing moral code within a community. So, you know, your, your parish church was at the heart of it, religion was there, and this was a way to teach everything else about life itself. And therefore, the parish church um, was attended, um, at least in theory, on Sundays and religious festivals by the majority. However, and that's what we, I suppose, we often think about the medieval period, everyone went to parish church. The parish church was the sort of main focus of society, and they were always there. They were always attending. 
But that's not quite the case. There is quite a lot of evidence to suggest that um, people didn't bother as much with religion as we might assume. Um, they didn't always go to church on a Sunday. And uh, there's, in fact, there's many reports of priests reporting to his bishop that hardly anyone was coming to um, to the church on a Sunday. In fact, they were larking about in the streets playing. And uh, other records give the sense that at least a sizable minority enjoyed themselves elsewhere on a Sunday morning. So it appears that Sundays were not church-going days. Ah, that's so interesting. I mean, people love visiting churches. I think I, I find them always magnetically atta- uh, attracted to a church in, in a village. And there's something when you open that squeaky door and go inside, you never know what to find. If you had to visit five churches, for example, what, where, would, where would you suggest? Oh, gosh, it's, such, it's so difficult. Um, a couple I could give. Okay, so one would certainly be... Well, I think Norfolk in general has just some of some of the best churches, some of my favorite churches being uh, this is due to down to survival of um sort of medieval survivals, what's there in the churches left, same with Cornwall, but norfolk Norfolk and Suffolk particularly have have a great deal of uh, medieval survivals and when you say survival um, do, do you mean survival of the Re- Reformation so a lot of thing a lot of a lot was lost during the during the reformation is that is that what you mean? That's yes, that's certainly true, and a lot of them do have um, evidence of what happened at the Reformation as well. And in fact, so one of my favourites um, is Ranworth, um, and it's an icon of the Norfolk Broads. It has a 14th century tower which stands high above the River Bure and looks out over the Malthouse Broad. It's known as the Cathedral of the Broads, and in fact. It still has three outstandingly important 15th century historical treasures, which include a magnificent painted rood screen, an illuminated book known as the Ramworth Antiphona, and um, a superbly carved counter's desk. The church itself was built around the mid-15th century on the site of an earlier church. And the reason it became such an affluent church and um, just an extremely... uh, wonderful church, I suppose, in architectural terms, is that um, the medieval world trade, the local medieval world trade, brought wealth to local merchants, and they lavished, lavished their riches on the church, and therefore it has became one of the finest in the country. The church would have been very much um, separate sections for different people, and um, it was very much um, squared off, I suppose, these sections were squared off. So as we walk into churches today, they are very grand, open spaces. They're very plain spaces. So one thing to to note, first of all, is that um, the parish church um, and indeed our cathedrals were entirely painted in primary colours. So they were awash with colour, vivid, bright colours. We we completely forget that today because they are just very we, very, we just see the stonework, I suppose, the white, plain stonework. Yeah, completely but whitewashed were, or, or, or the naked stone, yeah. Absolutely. But they weren't, they were covered in blues, reds, yellows, gold, gilding. So you know, just imagine something that was covered in colour. The closest we see is in Germany, you can still see these types, that sort of area. You can still see these types of churches, but it's, it's very hard to, to fathom. So when one would walk in, depending on who you were, if you were just a regular layman, I suppose, your domain, as I say, would be the nave. If you were um, of higher society, 
you may have a chantry chapel to the say the in the north. So the northeastern chapel would be your domain. And you would have essentially bought that chantry chapel. And what that meant was you would have a priest there who would be um just there to take services for you and to say those services for your soul even after you had died and you might be interred there once you have died and the entire chapel itself um would have been decorated created for you um in association and dedication to your saint whoever that might have been um and then you had the chancel the sanctuary area which was essentially the priest's domain um and they would be, what I think we forget is they would be facing east. So they have their back to you. And then they were all, there was these screens everywhere. So you very much don't see much of what's going on, particularly during the Eucharist. You don't see what's going on. You're in the nave. So how did you get into ecclesiastical history? How, how, what journey did you take to get there? I've, uh, I've always been very much interested in in ex- understanding and experiencing the past through historic buildings, I suppose, historic sites as a whole. Um, so when I look at it from that approach, and I began um, my sort of academic career via art history, actually, and I was very much drawn to the medieval ecclesiastical buildings. So I was drawn to the, the stained glass and the portal sculpture of our great cathedrals, and I went that way and then looked at um, the medieval saints' who were pictured within them and, you know, how were people thinking about them? How were people perceiving, experiencing these saints? You know, were they being taught by these magnificent buildings or not? Um, and how were they, how are they experiencing them in a different way that we do today? So a particular approach that I take is sensory experience. So, you know, how, how did they taste, smell, touch, et cetera, in a different way that we do today? Um, and so I went that way in my, my PhD was in um, pilgrimage art and architecture of the medieval church. So I was looking at how shrines um, and the surrounding and associated art and architecture developed in relation to providing pilgrims with a much more intense um, and engaged sensory experience. You know, were were churches catering for pilgrims? You know, were they providing much many more relics and much more of um an integrative experience in terms of the art and architecture for pilgrims themselves in order that they would, you know, come and visit and give them more money. But in a way, it is like modern-day theme parks, modern-day tourist attractions. The more large rides you have, the more people want to come visit. So the more relics, the more shrines you have, the more interesting architecture, the more pilgrims are going to come. Underlying slight monetary thinking here that uh, they might be yeah. able to generate some some or certainly com- commercially minded uh absolutely churches obviously have had their parish churches have had their important role and some still do play an absolutely fundamental role in the bonding of a community but a lot of them lie empty and rather unloved uh, do you see a future for them in in as, as part of communities or some other role that they could play that's a very loaded question in these current climes. But actually, I think this is a, a, a very is a very important question, a very important problem. I think, of course, congregations are dwindling, and there are indeed ways that we could bring people back into churches. Um, secular activities is one is one way of doing so, whether one agrees with that or not, it certainly gets people through the doors, whether they convert to 
Whether they convert to churchgoers is another matter. However, there are some wonderful trusts and societies, such as the Churches Conservation Trust. Um, I teach the postgraduate diploma in parish churches at York in association with the Churches Conservation Trust. And they they are specifically there to deal with churches that are sort of not they sort of not in use, as it were. They're still consecrated, but um, there isn't the congregation there anymore to you know to keep them going. Um, and there's also the friends of the friendless churches, redundant, redundant churches, etc. So I think I personally think that trusts and societies like this are the way forward because they can they understand and they realise the importance of the fact that church buildings are not there only to be a church for missional purposes, which of course is the primary the primary role. But a lot of these buildings are some of our greatest um greatest heritage assets, you know, our greatest architectural and material marvels. So we do need to ensure that they are still there in a hundred years, two hundred years, a thousand years, in the same way that they have been. So I think that's perhaps the way to go. And you know, they, they come up with several different ways of, of um opening their doors whether it's from you know, using them as filming locations to having wonderful sort of Christmas candlelight events, you know, seeing what how a church in the medieval era would have felt, would have been, and, you know, visiting I for s- events such as those. I saw your tweet think, about sleeping in a church and the, and the delight about that. Could, there be, could they be opened up as sort of um, not, not glamping sites, but as sort of, you know, resting places for pilgrims and for, for walkers? Absolutely. I was going to say there's, the, there is there is the champing, there is the idea of pilgrimage. Um, Champ, champing, do you call it? Champ, champing is, um, yes, church camping. Right, okay. That's the CCTV term. So that, of course, that that is another way of, of um, you know, people coming through the doors and you get to see these wonderful build, buildings. But that's true as well. Could we not have them as... In fact, hospitiums, you know, the old type hospitals where pilgrims would come along and rest for the night. Um, it's the same, it's the exact, the exact same idea that the way that we used to use them in the medieval era. Nothing has changed. Why not use them in that same way? I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with it. Uh, if they are not being used for worship on a regular basis, I think it's... Yeah, we should definitely just encourage people to visit them as well this Easter. And so you mentioned cathedrals. Um you have a, you're working on a book at the moment. Could you tell us yeah. a bit about that? Which um, the next book, um, my next book is called Heaven on Earth: um, The Lives and Legacies of the World's Greatest Cathedrals, and it looks at twenty of the world's well, my what I think are the world's greatest cathedrals. Particularly, it's largely our medieval cathedrals across Europe. It's not certainly not just Britain across Europe. Um, and I'm I'm trying to look at and trying to discover not not only um, the art and architecture, um, which you know a lot of a lot of books are focused on the past, which is absolutely wonderful. I mean, I'm certainly looking at that, but I want to um, I want to see I want to know more about who the people were behind these Greek buildings, um, who created this wonderful fabric, you know, the stories behind. These majestic marvel, marvels, um, which are some of the most epic sagas in our history, they teem with extraordinary cast of characters. Um, and you know, we have so many chronicles about the the builders, the style, and the construction. So, I'm trying to 
bring this all together, but under one roof, um, pardon the pun, um, the, the living histories of the sort of unexamined details to bring a fresh interpretation of these feats of imagination, engineering, mystery that that we all think we know so so very well. Um, so yeah, it's looking at the the lies, the legends, and also the scandals because there are some fantastic stories behind how they were built and the people who built them. Um, you know, it's a human story, I suppose, like set against um, some of the most astonishing achievements of Western culture. Final question. Um, yes. So you're out, you're getting out and about quite a lot. You're seeing a lot of the British landscape. Where where do you love to go to escape from the dusty books of academia or the the tedious news on the, on the radio? Where do you go <laughs> for a, for a lovely a break? Where could you recommend? I. I, myself, I love to go to, I'm a bit biased, but the Yorkshire Dales, um, Wensleydale particularly. Um, I love to wander, uh, again, biased, but I love to wander the, particularly the sites, you know, walk from castle to castle. There are some absolutely fantastic ones with some great Tudor history up here. We're often forgotten up here for our Tudor history, but we have Hutton and Pars, um one of her homes, we have where Mary Queen of Scots was held, all within an absolutely beautiful landscape. And that's that's where I like to walk and like to visit. Brilliant. I think that's a good place to leave it. But um, thanks so much. Yes. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. Well, I hope that whets your appetite for a holy hike this year, whether you are religious or not. And a huge thanks to Emma Wells for her expertise and enthusiasm. And Emma will be joining the magazine on a more regular basis later in the year, offering insight into key historical events that have shaped the countryside. Plus, she's even going to walk a pilgrimage route for us. Thank you also to Hannah Tribe for mastering the Old English prologue from Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And you can find hundreds more walks, articles about the countryside and insight into the Countryfile TV programme on our website, countryfile.com. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please subscribe at Acast and iTunes, and we've got plenty more adventures coming up later this year. Thanks for listening. Bye.